Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about what Donald Trump has done in his first month in office that actually matters, not just what he tweeted. George Zornick will review the record. Also, historians are often asked who in our political path Donald Trump resembles. Of course, some say Nixon, some say George Wallace. Today we will ask the opposite question. Who in our past is the political figure who's the most different from Donald Trump, the opposite of Donald Trump? The answer there is easy. Eleanor Roosevelt, Blanche Wiesen Cook, will explain. Volume 3 of her biography of Eleanor Roosevelt is out now. But first, dark money and Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Jane Mayer. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several award-winning and best-selling books, including the indispensable book, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals. Her latest book, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. It's out now in paperback. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone made a striking argument here that we want to get your reaction to. He said Trump's victory was a victory for democracy— because it proved that you don't need to have the assent of the donor class in order to win the presidency. In the past, if the rich donors rejected a candidate, that candidate was not going to win. Of course, Matt and all the rest of us recognize that Trump was exactly the wrong person to be president, but he did win despite the fact that big money didn't want him. You are our expert on the donor class. (laughs) So let's talk about this, which is the subject of the new preface to the paperback of Dark Money. First of all, it is true that Trump rejected the big money donors uh, during the primaries and during the campaign. Isn't that true? Well, it's also true that Trump is not exactly a representative of the pauper class. Uh, He's a billionaire who spent $66 million dollars of his own money to get elected and has behind him a hedge fund manager, Robert Mercer. One of his biggest backers is is Mercer, who runs um, the hedge fund Renaissance Technologies in New York, which is the most lucrative hedge fund in the country, according to many write-ups. So he had many, many, many millions of dollars at his disposal and, and spent many of them. It is true that he was not the favorite of the Koch brothers, who I write about in my book. Yeah, uh, let me ask you, who who was the favorite of the Koch brothers? Did they have a candidate in, in the primaries? This year, this last year, their favorites would have been pretty much uh, probably Scott Walker or maybe Marco Rubio, um, someone someone who sort of shares their hatred of big government and wants to get rid of social programs for middle class and poor people they 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 want to you know get rid of ent- what they call entitlements meaning social security and medicare and medicaid so they were looking for someone sort of in the, in that mode and someone who wants to 
get rid of regulations on business. So Trump checks off that box for them. But they like um, free trade. They like cheap labor. They like um, uh, they have a huge multinational corporation, the second largest private one in the in the country, and and so they they like you know globalization. It's worked well for them. So that's why Trump wasn't really their choice. But if you go back to 2012, Charles Koch's first choice for any politician in the country to run for president was Mike Pence. Mike so Pence. Mike, Mike Pence was Pence. their fir- the Koch brothers' first choice in 2012. That is this pretty is darn true. interesting. So, you know, Trump may not be reliably in their pocket the way that they would like him to be. They're very happy to have Mike Pence right there at his elbow. And um, and many, many, many more of the people that have been in their donor circle and the lobbyists and operatives who've worked for them are crawling all over the Trump administration. Before we get to what's happened since the election, I just want to talk about the campaign a little more where Trump... Uh, didn't he actually ridicule the other candidates for going to visit the Koch brothers and and uh, asking for money? He yes, he uh, one of his tweets was um, when some of his rivals in the Republican primaries were all flocking to the Kochs have a donor summit where basically candidates um, they they audition to see if they can get their backing their money backing and and so his rivals were heading out there and he wasn't invited so he tweeted puppets anyone <laughs> and, um, which you know you have to laugh at and I, I I talk about in the very end of the book how it the book came out a year ago so it was long before the election but it it seemed possible that the base of and 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 actually people in both parties were so fed up in this country with big donors seeming to own the whole system that by Trump playing to that that anger he could get some traction and and he milked it a lot during the campaign i mean he he talked a lot about you know big donors being corrupt and government being bought and sold and, and he mostly used this as an argument against Hillary Clinton saying that she was bought and paid for and that in fact he you know tried to buy and pay for many of these politicians himself so he 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 used that that corruption argument to get himself elected and i think in a way you can see parallels between him and bernie yeah. where both of them were getting traction on that and i think they both sensed a very real and legitimate feeling out in the country, which is the big money's, you know, it's it's got too much influence over the government. It's getting the government to serve private interests, not the public interest. So, so Trump played into that a lot, and 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 part of the reason it worked so well for him was that it was true. Yes. Um, you know, in that there, we've gone through these years where where the big the big money has gotten more and more influence, especially since the 2010 Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. So that's what the, the book is that I wrote was describing this corruption. And, you know, it would be nice to think like Matt Taibbi that somehow Donald Trump spells, you know, the, you know, the, the clean, clean house and clean hands. But boy, it, it is so far from it. So the Koch brothers didn't support Trump really over political differences. They are in favor of free trade. Trump is against free trade. They want to cut Medicare and Social Security. Trump, during the campaign at least, said he would defend Medicare and and Social Security. What did the Koch brothers do during the campaign? 
they poured money into Senate races and House races and gubernatorial races and even local races. I mean, they have gotten down to the school board level in some parts of the country. What they've been doing is building a, a political machine to kind of take over politics at every level in the country. And the truth is, though people don't really know this often, they've never really been able to buy a president. They, they, they've never really even played in a very big way in the presidential race. This year was going to be the year they were going to try for that in a big way. And they had put together a jackpot to spend on it. But then what happened was the wrong guy got the nomination from their standpoint. So instead, they poured that money into races at all the other levels. And it's really Congress where you can see the huge clout that they've bought. And you, and you can see it also in things like, look at the, the current EPA choice that, that Trump appointed, Scott Pruitt. I mean, he is so much the Koch's person. But in, during the campaign, the, as far as the presidential race they they just kind of set a pox on all their houses in terms of, but they didn't like Hillary obviously, um, and they're they're way, you know way to the right of the Republican Party, so they they had pulled the Republican Party to way to the right, and Trump, part of it was ideological, part of it I think was that they felt he was unreliable. You know, it's like what the old robber barons used to say: they hated politicians who, when you bought them, they didn't stay bought. Um, and I think they looked at Trump and felt like he might not stay bought. So Trump said that people who went to the uh, Koch brothers were puppets. The Koch brothers rejected Trump for his politics. How hard was it for the two sides uh, to get together once Trump had been elected? Well, let's put it this way. By election night, there seemed to be enough of a rapprochement between the Kochs and Trump that David Koch, he's the New York brother, he's the, the sometimes the richest or the second richest man in New York, depending on sort of where Bloomberg's fortune is. Anyway, David Koch was there on election night at the hotel celebrating the victory of Donald Trump. So um, it looked like they were going to be able to figure out a way to do business together. And how much business have they done together in the weeks that Trump has been in office? Well, I mean, so much has happened. It's almost sort yes. of dizzying. I'm here yes. in Washington watching it. But uh, you can see that in in many respects, Tim Phillips, who's, who heads the Koch's political organization, which is called Americans for Prosperity, Tim Phillips said there's almost no daylight between us, that means between the Kochs and Trump, on many, many, many policies, and particularly on on things like having to do with, with taxes and regulations, and particularly environmental regulations and, and policy on climate change. I mean, it's, it's amazing how close Trump is to the kind of playbook that the, the Kochs have been, you know, trying to implement for years. The Kochs' main business, they have many, many businesses, but they're very big in oil and gas and the railroads which transport uh, oil and gas. So it's the Department of Energy, as you say, the EPA and regulations in general. The Trump's Secretary of Energy pick was Rick Perry. Is Rick Perry part of Coke World? Well, you know, I mean, he's allied with them. I, I, don't, I don't know that they've, I, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head how much money they've given to Perry. But, you know, anybody who protects the Texas oil businesses is someone that they're going to like. I think, to the surprise of many, maybe um, Perry in Texas also 
tried to help support the wind industry, the wind energy industry. And the thing is that the Cokes are against any form of alternative and particularly renewable energy. Anything that's a threat to their fossil fuel business, they oppose. And so they may have a a few mixed feelings about him on that score. I want to talk about whether there's any signs that Trump has any reservations about embracing the Cokes or their agenda. Does he see any conflicts With the positions he took during the campaign, does he have any concerns that his white working class base might conceivably feel betrayed about what he's doing now? Well, I think this is the, you know, it's the question I have, too, as a reporter. I'm watching to see whether the base that thought they were getting a populist is going to mind that his policies serve the richest people in the country. And, and, you know, I suppose a lot will depend on what his job performance is like and his economic performance and whether, but whether he delivers on those promises. So I, I, I don't know. And I think what will matter to the Kochs is, you know, will, will Trump really cut spending? Will he, will he really protect Social Security? And will he really protect Medicare as he promised middle-class voters he would? Or will he go along with Paul Ryan's um, plan to privatize these things? So we'll see as they roll out their economic, domestic economic programs, whose side he's really on. Uh, one last question. How important is killing Obamacare to the Koch brothers in their operation? You know, I mean, they're all in favor of killing Obamacare. Um, they don't like anything that suggests a strong government. They'd rather see business run things. So they've been against Obamacare. But the things that matter most to them are the things that affect their bottom line. And that has to do with energy policy, environmental policy, taxes and regulations. Jane Mayer, her terrific book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. It was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times, and it's out now in paperback. Thank you, Jane. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. One of the goals on this podcast is to focus on what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. It's hard not to be distracted by Trump's tweets, but George Zornick has succeeded. He writes a weekly report for The Nation called Everything Trump Did This Week That Actually Matters. He's the nation's Washington editor. We reached him in our nation's capital. George Zornick, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. But what about Trump tweeting this past week that the news media are, quote, the enemy of the American people? Wasn't that outrageous? Isn't that deeply disturbing? It, it certainly was. But I don't know if you want to be distracted by these things. And I, and I use the word distracted carefully because, you know, words can really matter. If, if he is driving a wedge between the American people and news media, that that is something that can have real consequences and problems. But part of what our goal has been is to focus on what you know, the administration is actually doing. What legislation is Trump signing? And he's actually only signed two things. Let's go back a minute here and remind our listeners it's the end of Trump's first month. And just for comparison, I want to look at Obama's first month in office. At this point in the Obama presidency, he had signed a $787 billion stimulus bill. Didn't not just drafted, not just submitted to Congress. He got it passed and signed. He also signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which allows individuals who face pay discrimination 
to seek a redress uh, under federal law. He banned torture. He sent 17,000 additional troops to Afghanistan. And he ended his first month with a net uh, job approval rating of plus 27 percent. So our question for you, George, is what did Trump actually do that mattered during his first month? You know, not very much, not as much as it would seem. Um, He issued a lot of executive orders. Some of them were completely meaningless. Like if you saw, for example, and we wrote about it, the, the executive order he signed on protecting police from violence. And the pattern that these things follow, which is unlike any other recent president, is that they say that Trump is going to sign an executive order. He signs it and they invite cameras in, but no reporters actually get to see what's in the order. So there's this sort of guessing and and in some cases panic over what he just signed. And so the Blue Lives Matter one sticks out to me because people thought, oh, well, it's going to be, you know, it's going to dramatically increase penalties for you know, any kind of of resistance to police officers, and it could make like a law in Louisiana, even resisting arrest, you know, a very serious felony offense. And then when the order actually came out after all this, it didn't do anything. I mean, it was literally just a series of statements about, oh, we value police and, you know, we discourage uh, people from undertaking violence against police, which of course is already illegal. And, and, And it was basically a nothing burger. I would say a vast majority of the executive orders that Trump has signed are, are, are closer to campaign statements than actual things that bind the federal government to any particular course of action. There are some big exceptions, obviously. We're speaking on Tuesday, and he has just issued new guidance on deportation. What is this about, and when is it going to take effect? Well, that's an interesting question about when it's going to take effect. If just I'll, I'll jump ahead to that real quick because what, what they're doing is, and we can explain this in details, but they're vastly expanding the pool of people who will be, uh, quote-unquote, prioritized for deportation. And, and prioritized is a big um, buzzword in, in, this, in this area because it means, you know, technically all 11 or 12 million people in the country who don't have documentation – can be deported, and, and prioritization is the question. So what this order does is basically say everybody. I mean, without getting too much into the weeds, it says essentially everybody is prioritized. If you do not um, have documentation, you are, quote-unquote, a priority for the government. Um, but when it happens is interesting because although the DH, Department of Homeland Security can say this, they don't have the funding yet to undertake this. They don't have the funding to hire the law enforcement and border patrol agents that it will take to, you know, prioritize everybody in the country who, who isn't documented. They don't have the, the detention center capacity to do that. I mean, they, they literally don't have the places to hold people for that. Um, that's going to come to Congress. Congress is going to have to authorize it. There's going to be a really long battle between, you know, Democrats and maybe some moderate Republicans who will, try to slow that down. Um, conservatives who are not particularly high on, on immigration enforcement, but very high on, um, you know, deficit spending and watching every single federal dollar. So there's going to be this kind of rollicking debate of how do they actually fund this deportation machine. Then, then once there is a law that is passed by Congress and signed by the president, then the ACLU promises they will go to court to challenge it. 
Yeah, they absolutely will. And that's going to get it. Now, that doesn't mean unless we get a judge, and I don't think it's too likely that immediately halts enforcement, that's going to be something that happens in the background as this sort of deportation uh, machine grinds on and, and, you know, picks up human lives in, in the in the process. There's one more step. First, Congress has to has to pay for and pass the bill. Second of all, it has to pass court challenges, which the ACLU is promised to devote its full energies to. And then third, the sanctuary cities where millions of undocumented people live have pledged to uh, refuse to cooperate and to protect undocumented people. There will be confrontations. There will be uh, battles if they try to do anything like uh, mass roundups in many of our biggest cities. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating to watch. You know, one of the very first uh, deportations that kind of put the country on alert that this was happening um, was that woman in, in California who went in for her regular sort of check-in with the authorities, um, which she had been doing for years and years, was deported on the spot. And if you remember, because it was all over the news, her family and friends and local activists literally surrounded the van that was going to take her and blocked it from leaving um, temporarily, unfortunately. She was she was then deported to Mexico the next day. But, you know, the kind of resistance around these things is going to be fascinating. When, when this machine really kicks into gear and when communities are being um, torn up and broken apart, I think there's going to be mass demonstrations. And, you know, it, it's, it's reasonable to realize that they may not all be peaceful. I mean, imagine law enforcement coming into a community and ripping out family members and, and you know, sending them out of the country. At some point, the resistance to that is going to be not so organized. It's going to be chaotic and emotional and maybe violent. And of course, that will feed a whole other loop. I mean, if, if that gets on the Fox News, um, it will be getting more crackdowns and, and more pushback and more crackdowns. So it, it could all head to a very ugly place pretty quickly. That's the most important executive order, the most recent thing that he's done in his first month. You said he's he's only signed two pieces of legislation. What what were they and how significant were they? They're, they're pretty significant. It's an interesting process. The Obama administration had a flurry of rulemaking going on in its last year, um, including some very important rules that, that protected, um, in these two cases, number one, keeping mountaintop removal coal mining operations from dumping um, debris and, and sort of byproduct of those operations into local streams and waterways. But Republicans in the House and Senate passed a disapproval. President Trump signed it. So now it's it's gone. It's off the books. And what's really disturbing about this process, it's not just that it's off the books, but the way that the law was written in 96, the federal government can never again in the history, the future of the republic, pass another substantially similar regulation. It can't put another one into place um, ever again unless Congress is consulted. So it's not even a matter of, oh, President Sherrod Brown will come in, in in three years and just put the rule back on the books. Well, he can't really do that. He would need a Democratic Congress to go along with him. Wow. So that was one that Trump signed. And the other one was another uh, congressional resolution disapproval and it was a rule finalized by the SEC as part of Dodd-Frank, which basically said that if oil companies and, and energy companies are paying money to foreign governments, uh, that they had to disclose those payments. And the idea was, you know, when Exxon pays the small ruling click of a banana republic that's very resource rich, that we should know about that payment and it should be exposed to sunlight and maybe it would stop big energy companies from you know, propping up 
despots and dictators in that part of the world and many parts of the world that are resource rich and starving their population. So, you know, Europe has those rules. It's, it's, it's pretty common. The U.S. was on the verge of having it, but Trump uh, signed a bill passed by Congress to eliminate it. So what we have for Trump's first month of legislation is a bill that allows coal mining operations to put more pollution in streams and another bill that allows oil companies to hide bribes to foreign governments. These are bad, but these are tiny compared to the right. agenda that he laid out. Repeal and replace Obamacare, bring back American manufacturing jobs. The House plan is to tax imports, which will really transform the world of uh, big box retailing in, in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Where do we stand on the big parts of Trump's agenda, the, the uh, tax and trade part and the repeal and replace Obamacare part? Well, we're, I think we're pretty far, and I, I think it's quite possible that even in this calendar year, we might make it all the way to Christmas and New Year's without seeing uh, a, an actual a plan passed by Congress and signed by the president. Slightly, slightly in, in Trump's defense, you know, redoing the tax code is a gargantuan task. Uh, coming up with a health care plan that keeps people covered, also a gargantuan task, and one that took Obama longer you know, than his first year to really put into place. But in, in the summer of 2009, you know, Congress was at least the committees were passing up parts of what would become the Affordable Care Act. Um, there was real momentum to it. And, and one of the big differences is that Trump and, and Trump's team, I, I say Trump as not just him, but the people, the policy people that he has brought into the White House are not really interesting, interested in governing per se. I mean, they're not like, Obama coming in in 2009, or even George W. Bush coming in with a real vision for what the, the laws and, and policy of the U.S. government should be and how to get it done. And um, this is how to work with Congress and what to get through committees. I mean, Trump is, is sort of governing as he campaigned, which is in a lot of these flashy executive order statements and, and appointments and little Twitter controversies, but not actually putting his shoulder into the wheel of governing, of, of coming up with very complex legislation and, and pushing an agenda through, because frankly, Trump doesn't really have an agenda. I mean, he you could see on the campaign trail, aside from a few issues, he was kind of making it up as he went along, and, and we're seeing that now that he's in the White House. Now, I have a theory about all this that I want to try out on you. You've pointed out Trump has accomplished very little of anything in his first month, if anything, during what should have been his honeymoon period, he's lost, he's lost ground. He's become more unpopular. So here's what I'm thinking about. Maybe Trump, while he obviously wants to be an authoritarian, he's sort of incompetent at being a president. He, it's not even clear that he wants to devote the work, the time, the effort. That It's very hard to get things done in Washington. And what you have just told us is, it's not even clear that he uh, he's trying very hard to get things done in Washington. What do you think of my theory? I think that's right. I mean, look, you know, we're talking about policies that he's put into place and, and trying to stick to facts. But I, I think, you know, I will float this proposition and, and we'll just have to speculate and be clear that it's speculation. But do you think that Trump truly cares whether the Affordable Care Act is replaced, number one, and number two, whether he is able to shape American healthcare policy in a way that he sees fit. I mean, does he really, truly care about that? Would he give two figs if the whole thing just never happened? 
I, I really doubt that Trump understands healthcare policy, is interested in it, has a vision that he particularly wants to implement. I mean, his health care policy basically amounts to Obama did this thing, which I don't like because he did it and my base hates it. And I'd love to get rid of it. And that's really kind of the stopping point for it. George Zornick, he writes everything Trump did this week that actually matters every week at thenation.com. George, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, anytime. Historians are often asked who in our political past Donald Trump resembles. Some people, of course, say Nixon. Some say George Wallace. Today, we're going to ask the opposite question. Who in our past is the political figure who's the most different from Donald Trump? Who's the opposite of Trump? And there, the answer is easy. Eleanor Roosevelt. To explain just how striking the contrast is, we turn to Blanche Wiesen-Cook. She's a distinguished professor of history at John Jay College and the City University Graduate Center in New York. And now the third and final volume of her acclaimed biography of Eleanor Roosevelt is out. Volume one of her Eleanor biography won the L.A. Times Book Prize. All three have been bestsellers. And the new volume three was named one of the New York Times's 100 Notable Books of 2016, and one of NPR's 10 Best Books of 2016. We reached her today in New York City. Blanche Wiesen-Cook, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much, John. Great to be with you. This volume begins in 1939, a year many historians have called the worst year of the 20th century. FDR had been president at that point for for six years. What was going on in the United States and the world that year? Well, 1939 is the year the World War II broke out in Europe. It's the height of the Nazi era, the fascist era. Hitler is just walking through Europe, and the U.S. is facing the possibilities of involvement. There's a big isolationist movement to keep the U.S. out of war as if it were not our business. And the, the battlefield that we see today, the tragedies that we see today, were really underway then. And so one of the great themes of the book are rescue and race, the flood of refugees across the different borders and boundaries and walls of Europe were amazing, and today they are also amazing. Today there are 64 million refugees seeking sanctuary and shelter, and In 1939, there were millions of people seeking sanctuary and shelter, and doors were closed, especially the doors to the U.S. Let's talk a little bit more about what was going on in the United States in 1939. You know, one of the things that's sort of amazing is we forget how absolutely discriminatory, prejudiced, bigoted, racist, this country was, as we stood talking about democracy, but our Congress was dominated by Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats who absolutely committed to segregation. The U.S. couldn't pass an anti-lynch law. And Eleanor Roosevelt really is demanding 
that we deal, if we're going to stand for democracy. She, write, she writes a wonderful book called The Moral Basis of Democracy, in which she actually says the questions of democracy involve economics. We have been too devoted to the gods of mammon. She yes. says humanity must rise above purely selfish interest and take responsibility for one another. Democracy involves the spirit of social cooperation. And that is her message, that is her legacy, that is what she fought for every day of her life from the 1920s until her death on the 7th of November, 1962. We have to build movements. We have to go, in her words, trooping for democracy. We have to go door to door, block by block, community by community, and build movements for democracy to get our wants and our needs met. That was her commitment and her efforts and her legacy. And here we are in the 21st century looking at a world that threatens to devour every single important change that happened during the New Deal, the Social Security Act. Imagine, long before Bernie Sanders, Eleanor Roosevelt said, we have to have free, public, quality, excellent education for all children. In 1934, she gives a speech, we have to understand, we all go ahead together or we all go down together. And that's her first speech on behalf of integrated public schools. And then in 1943, she calls for free public higher education for everybody, training and college, tuition free. Let's talk about the rescue of refugees, which, as you say, is very much in the headlines today, many echoes of the World War II uh, era that we find in the Trump White House. I guess, I guess we have to talk about the SS St. Louis. Right. Well, this is a very great tragedy, the ship that went back to Europe filled with 900 passengers um, in 1939. And, and who, um, remind us who was on the SS St. Louis and why it was trying to land uh, in the United States? Well, it was filled with affluent refugees from Germany and Austria and Europe that was already, you know, invaded by Hitler. Ultimately, England, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway took people in. But, you know, many people perished who were sent back. The, the silence uh, about this is one of the extraordinary things. And one of Eleanor Roosevelt's great friends, Earl Miller, um, is in, he's posted, he's in the military at this point, and he's in his base in Florida, and the ship is going back and forth looking for a port of entry. And the Navy is out there making sure it won't find a port of entry because the State Department, run by a hideous man named Breckenridge Long, and one of the mysteries of my book and of history is that FDR never fired Breckenridge Long, who would say these people are dangerous, these people are un-American, these people are they're Jewish communists, and the Red Scare 
is really, you know, they're not just refugees from Hitler. They're going to, you know, they're going to be terrorists, right? Isn't that what we hear? Yeah. They're, they're un-American. They're communists. And that was Breckenridge Wong's litany. That's what he said over and over and over again in his policy of delay, 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 let them perish. And Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, I mean, she's working for the Kinder Transport. She's working for, you know, all of the emergency rescue committee groups um, to, to let some people in. And the next ship which comes, called the Kwanzaa, the SS Kwanzaa, she says, that ship is going to land. That ship, those people will be my guests. And they do land, and they are admitted in, and Breckenridge Wong goes crazy, and he goes to FDR, and they had been to Groton and Harvard together, they're chums, and he says, who's running this show, me or your wife? And Breckenridge Wong then takes over everything, and the Kwanzaa is essentially the last gasp of Eleanor Roosevelt's power. One of the reviews of your book said, uh, I quote, if this volume has an anti-hero, it is Franklin, whose focus on world affairs often led to an adversarial relationship with Eleanor. I wonder if uh, you agree with that and if you could tell us a little about it. Well, you know, they had the most amazing partnership. And Eleanor Roosevelt always trusted that even though they had, you know, I mean, everybody knows about the Lucy Mercer affair and the fact that um, their, part, their, their marriage sort of morphed into a partnership. But Eleanor Roosevelt always believed that FDR, deep down, shared, they shared human values. They shared a sense of what was good and right and just. And so she said that she was his goad and he was her barometer. Um, so ultimately, he says, I can't do that because Congress will, you know, will give me what I want for defense. I can't, so we can't integrate the military. And we can't, I'm not going to make this a war for rescue. I'm not going to talk about it. But I don't think that he's the anti-hero in that. Eleanor Roosevelt always trusted that if he could, and she could build a successful movement, he would do the right thing on, on the issue of race and rescue. Alas, she was wrong. I want to do a little compare and contrasting first ladies here. The first question is, uh, how would you compare uh, Eleanor and Hillary as first ladies? Actually, quite a painful question at this point in our history. <laughs> oh, well, let me just say that in some ways, I wish that Hillary had followed Eleanor Roosevelt's script much more closely. Yes. Because Eleanor Roosevelt went around asking people, she went around the country and around the world, her heart wide open. I mean, I'm, I'm saying hearts open, fists high these days, which needs to be our posture. But she went around asking people two questions. She never said, listen to me, I have the answer. She always said, tell me, what do you want? What do you need? And she took her message from the people, and that's what she fought for. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite comparing and contrasting her with Hillary, except to say that Eleanor Roosevelt was very, very close to people in want, in need, in trouble. And, you know, she wanted us to move away from the god of mammon 
to understand that we need to build what I think we would today call the democratic socialist movement, a community movement in which we are all responsible for each other. And how about comparing uh, Eleanor uh, Roosevelt with Michelle Obama? Michelle Obama seems to have led a very restricted, had a very restricted and confined agenda compared to uh, Eleanor. Well, I think that perhaps politically she might be closer to Michelle Obama, who was silenced, and Eleanor Roosevelt was not silenced. And so when you say, you know, was was FDR the anti-hero, the answer is in some parts, no, because he never shut her up. He never, she, he didn't insist she stop her daily column. So she had a daily column, a weekly radio show. She got her views out there, sometimes limited, if it was an urgent question politically that he said, this is urgent, please don't do this, then she acknowledged that. But mostly, she is speaking to the people. And Michelle Obama, until the very end, was really silenced and did not speak to the people. And so one would wonder what she thought of drones, what she thought of targeted killings. She's an attorney. Is it constitutional? One wondered what she thought. She didn't say a word. One more compare and contrast that I think I have to ask you. This is also a painful one. Eleanor and Melania. Well, I can't really answer that because we have no idea who Melania is. There is, however, precedent for um, Harry Truman, for example. Best Truman wanted no part of the presidency and wanted no part of Washington and was never there. So Eleanor Roosevelt wrote, when she visited Harry Truman, which she did very often, Harry Truman's the loneliest man in the world. I, I don't think that Eleanor sued people for uh, denying her the opportunity to make millions uh, off of a unique opportunity for branded <laughs> products. No, no. I mean, I, I think Eleanor Roosevelt had a, a great sense of democracy. And, you know, if, uh, my fantasy is that if Eleanor Roosevelt were to write something about this, moment, she might say, listen, little man, there's a difference between a democracy and an autocracy, and we don't do that in the United States. We have limitations of power and a free press. That's what makes us great. (laughs) The book is Eleanor Roosevelt, The War Years and After, 1939 to 1962. The New York Times Book Review called it monumental and inspirational. The author is Blanche Wiesen-Cook. Blanche, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.